Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. The bread and butter of conservatives and conservative media for years now has been hyping up an investigation into President Biden's adult son, Hunter Biden, that never seemed to end. The investigation, which was opened in 2018 under Trump's Justice Department, has been used as a black box of sorts by Republicans. They used it to create a symmetry that didn't really exist between Trump's alleged crimes and what they speculated was the crime-ridden Biden family. And so long as this case was open and the investigation was behind closed doors, they could really make it whatever they wanted it to be. And even though that was the case, even though Republicans have been dining out on this Hunter investigation for years, they also have been up in arms about how it hadn't finished yet. They were aghast that Trump was indicted before Hunter. They wanted Hunter's case resolved immediately. Well, today we have some closure in that case. Today, we got the news that Hunter Biden is expected to enter a plea deal for two tax misdemeanors in that investigation. He is also expected to strike a deal with prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge. All of which means that after five years of investigating and after years of conservatives claiming this was the investigation that would topple the whole Biden family, Hunter is likely to plead guilty to two misdemeanors and serve some probation. This is what Republicans wanted, right? They wanted accountability, proof the Justice Department was fair and balanced and would prosecute anyone regardless of who they were. They should be satisfied now, right? Can we talk a little bit about the Hunter Biden plea deal and your reaction? My first reaction is it continues to show the two-tier system in America. If you were the president's leading political opponent, the DOJ tries to literally put you in jail and give you prison time. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. So the goalposts have moved. It's likely that no matter how the Hunter Biden investigation played out, the Republican Party would never really be satisfied. This is exactly what most Republicans said they wanted. But in the words of former President Donald Trump today, people are going wild over the Hunter Biden scam with the DOJ. Today, conservatives and conservative media had an absolute fit claiming this plea deal is evidence the DOJ went too easy on Hunter and that it's all evidence of a two-tier justice system that could not be farther from the truth. Let's look for a second at the two investigations Republicans are using as evidence of this supposed two-tiered system. First, there's the investigation to Hunter Biden's taxes, which was launched by the Trump Justice Department back in 2018. The investigation was assigned to the Trump-appointed U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, When Biden took office, he could have easily replaced Delaware's U.S. attorney. Delaware is Biden's home state. Presidents replace U.S. attorneys all the time. It would have been totally normal for Biden to replace this Trump-appointed prosecutor with someone more in line with the goals of his own administration. But here's the thing. He didn't. Biden kept Trump's own pick for U.S. attorney in place so as to not even give the impression that he was interfering with this investigation. On top of that, Biden's attorney general, Merrick Garland, has explicitly and publicly pledged not to interfere at all with the investigation. 
Garland has said that the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney leading that investigation is, quote, not to be denied anything he needs. Okay, so that is one example of our Justice Department at work. The Biden administration, DOJ, bending over backwards to not show any favor, even any appearance of favor, to the president's son. Then there are the investigations into President Trump. Just last week, we got this reporting from The New York Times detailing how special counsel Jack Smith is being as deferential as possible to former President Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Now, the Times reports that this is likely an effort to avoid having the case delayed by distracting fights. The end result, though, is that Trump is getting the kid glove treatment. Quote, the magistrate judge assigned to handle Donald J. Trump's arraignment did something of a double take during the proceeding on Tuesday when the Justice Department offered the former president a bond deal that was not merely lenient, but imposed virtually no restrictions on him at all. Jack Smith opted not to request conditions routinely imposed on other defendants seeking to be released from custody, like cash bail, limits on domestic travel, returning in his passport. Smith was so lenient and deferential to Trump that the magistrate judge actually pushed back against Smith and imposed some restrictions on Trump against Smith's wishes. That's just in the courtroom. The actual charges against Trump, they are also tellingly deferential. Smith seems to have purposefully left out a potential charge that was listed in the affidavit the Justice Department filed to obtain a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago last summer, a charge about the concealing and mishandling of sensitive government documents. That was the only charge, the only charge that might have directly impacted Trump's ability to run for president. If someone is convicted of that charge, they are required to, quote, forfeit their office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. Trump is seemingly getting every accommodation possible. No mugshots or bail or anything else that normal defendants have to deal with. Well, at the same time, DOJ made sure to treat Hunter Biden by the book. The idea that Trump is being prosecuted unfairly here, well, that's absurd. Don't just take my word for it. Here's Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, in an op-ed just yesterday. Quote, Trump's indictment is not the result of unfair government persecution. This is a situation entirely of his own making. The effort to present Trump as a victim in the Mar-a-Lago document affair is cynical political propaganda. Today, we got the major news that the judge overseeing the Trump Mar-a-Lago documents case has set August 14th as the date for that trial to begin. There is a good chance that date could get pushed back, but the August date is significant nonetheless. Trump's case is being handled by the Trump-appointed judge, Aileen Cannon, who has been deferential to Trump in the past. You remember that. So there's been a worry that she might use her control of the schedule of this case to help Trump delay it. At least so far, that does not seem to be the case. And that means that we could be headed towards an absolutely incredible August for the former president. Not only is August potentially the start of Trump's trial in this case, but the first Republican presidential primary debate, yes, that too is set for August. Whether or not Trump is on that stage himself, his indictment or indictments are almost guaranteed to be a topic of discussion. And then there's Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Willis has signaled that at some point from late July through August, she will likely announce yet another set of charges against former President Trump. Whatever Trump's summer vacation plans are, they better be refundable. Joining us now, former U.S. attorney and MSNBC contributor Joyce Vance and former litigator and MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin. Thank you both so much for being here. Joyce, I want to go to you first. Republicans are calling Hunter Biden's plea agreement a, quote, sweetheart deal. 
and one that reveals a two-tier justice system from you, from a legal perspective. How do you see this? Well, it's really not. If anything, Hunter Biden has been charged a little bit more heavily than you would expect in this case. If you look at the heartland of DOJ cases and how this sort of conduct is charged, the misdemeanor charges for failure to file taxes are precisely how this sort of situation is routinely handled. It is by statute a misdemeanor, not a felony. The gun charge is a little bit more perplexing. Um, roughly 16%, give or take, of the federal criminal docket consists of gun cases in an average year. And about 66% of those cases in the most recent data that the Sentencing Commission puts out is a similar charge to the charge that Biden now faces. It is a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. But almost always that charge involves felons. And for reasons that are pretty easy to understand, it typically does not involve someone who is a user or someone who is addicted to drugs simply because there would be so many of those cases. Unless there's some sort of underlying connection of that gun to another crime, this is almost never charged. So it's a little bit surprising to see it here. So there's the plea itself, Lisa, and then there's also the way that this case has been handled. The U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, sent a letter to House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan. This is back in June, uh, making it clear that A.G. Garland gave him full authority in the Hunter Biden case. He wrote, quote, while your letter does not specify by name the ongoing investigation that is the subject of the committee's oversight, its content suggests your inquiry is related to an investigation in my district. If my assumption is correct... I want to make clear that, as the attorney general has stated, I have been granted ultimate authority over this matter, including responsibility for deciding where, when, and whether to file charges and for making decisions necessary to preserve the integrity of the prosecution, consistent with federal law, the principles of federal prosecution, and departmental regulations. Talk to me about the other steps that that Weiss took to make sure that this was, in fact, fair. Well, one of the things that Weiss did was ensure that this matter was handled by people outside his office. You know as well as I do that in Delaware, the Bidens are practically royalty, and there really aren't that many people in the District of Delaware that haven't had some touch point with the Biden family and the extended family. So what David Weiss did here was bring in experienced prosecutors from the District of Maryland, from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Those are the people that signed the information today. And one of them in particular has a background I find really interesting. He's the prosecutor who's been principally responsible for the prosecution of Baltimore City Attorney Marilyn Mosby. This is not a person who scares easily Mm -hmm. with respect to charges against people who are prominent in the Democratic Party. And I think that was also an important strategic consideration for David Weiss. This letter is just so amazing. I mean, Trump appointed AG saying to to Jim Jordan, like, chill out. I've got this. Well, and, you know, there are some people on Twitter today who've been making the point that David Weiss isn't really a Trump nominee because he had to be blue slipped or approved by the two Democratic senators in Delaware. Notwithstanding that, the choice belongs at the end of the day to the president. Yes, maybe David Weiss had to be palatable to Delaware's two Democratic senators, but he was still the choice of former President Trump, just like Jeff Berman was in the Southern District of New York. So maybe he's not the most partisan person he could have been appointed, but he was still acceptable 
available to people in the White House and the Department of Justice who are handling those sorts of nominations at the time. It's sort of a preposterous defense. Joyce, I want to talk about the other big news today. Judge Aileen Cannon has set the trial date in Trump's classified documents case to begin August 14th. Put that on your calendars. Run for two weeks. That start date just 55 days away. How unusual is this given federal trials can take up to a year or more to prepare? Well, this is a standard sort of order that you see issued in Miami and in other districts where the judges are committed to moving their cases along uh, as quickly as possible. You know, this reflects the 70 days that the Speedy Trial Act gives the government to bring a case to trial. But no one really expects that this August date will hold. There will be complications due to the handling of classified information. And there is very likely to be a request, at least from the Trump folks, um, asking Judge Cannon to revisit the D.C. judge's decision that DOJ would be permitted to use information gleaned from one of Trump's own attorneys. That will likely involve a decision from her and probably an appeal to the 11th Circuit by the aggrieved party if they can get it into an appealable posture. So that August date, unlikely. But I don't think that Judge Cannon will brook a lot of delay if she wants to act consistently with how other judges in her district behave. And that's the real unknown here. Will she continue to behave like she did in the Mar-a-Lago search warrant challenge or will she now retreat and be a little bit more like the typical judge in Miami? What do you think? I think Judge Cannon's behavior here is really hard to understand because this is a person who, through her special master order a year plus ago, gave Ray Deary, who was then the special master, more time to conduct a review of the seized materials that Trump said either belonged to him, were privileged, or otherwise should be excluded from the investigation. She set aside more time for that process then she's allowed between indictment and trial of the very same matter a year later. So this sort of swinging wildly between delay, 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 and let's go as fast as we possibly can is really hard for me to understand. And it's just my hope that Judge Cannon reaches a happy, calm medium in her administration of justice in this case. Joyce, talk to me about the timeline here, how Cannon's timeline potentially complicates things for Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, who, as we all know, has also signaled an August timetable for possible charges against Trump. Right. So if Fonnie Willis does file her charges in August, now we'll have three different judges in three different jurisdictions all competing to get the same defendant into their courtroom. But, you know, as we've discussed, this August trial setting in the Southern District of Florida is not a real setting. Everyone knows that there will not be a trial in the month of August, that it will be at some point in the future. And so judges are used to situations like this where they have to coordinate and work together. It may be that the cases that are earlier filed, of course, the case in Manhattan is the first one, and the federal case will move forward. But that's something that will have to be worked out among everyone involved in the prosecutions. I want you both quickly to listen to former President Trump in an interview with Fox just yesterday describing the documents he discussed in a recording of a July 2021 meeting at his golf club in Medminster, New Jersey. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. 
I mean, he has the right to remain silent. Like, this is a choice. So it's if not- you're his attorneys, what, what are you saying to him? Look, there's a reason that I think lots of reasonable people, Alicia, have refused this assignment. And that's because this is an ungovernable client. He not only has the right to remain silent, but every strategic bone in my body can't help but think he should remain silent because his admissions are building with each and every media appearance that he does. I think most people who have been involved in criminal defense watch this aghast just thinking, where are the responsible people? And I actually don't blame the Todd Blanches and Chris Kaisers of the world. I think they're doing the absolute best they can with a person whose counsel, the only counsel he takes is his own. Right? And Joyce, and if you're the prosecutors and you're watching that interview? Well, you're certainly cataloging all of the president's, the former president's public appearances and and making yourself a big batch of tapes that you may end up playing in your case in chief or on cross-examination of the witnesses. Because every time Trump makes one of these public statements, he's potentially contributing to the large pile of evidence that the government has against him. He's making it easier to cross-examine him. We saw how this played out in the E. Jean Carroll case, where some of the most powerful testimony there was his own uh, deposition testimony, where he misidentified a photograph of E. Jean Carroll as his second wife, Marla Maples. And that certainly landed with the jury. Prosecutors will hope for a similar sort of a smoking gun here. And if the former president doesn't learn to to quit talking, they're very likely to have it. Former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance, MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin, thank you both so much for being with us. When we come back, the political divide over the investigations into Donald Trump and Hunter Biden. Congressman Eric Swalwell joins us next. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis goes quiet on two issues he has made major changes to, abortion and immigration. Stay with us. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too. Because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Rapatha.com or call 1-844-RAPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Rapatha. If you were following Republicans on Twitter or watching Fox News today, then you probably know that to them, the biggest political scandal in this country has nothing to do with former President Donald Trump facing more than 30 criminal counts for retaining top secret documents at Mar-a-Lago. No. To Republicans, the biggest scandal out there 
is the fact that after many years of investigation, the Justice Department today reached a plea deal with President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, in relation to two tax misdemeanors, a deal that allows him to avoid prosecution on a separate gun charge. The probe against Hunter Biden started under Trump, continued under Biden with a Trump-appointed prosecutor at the helm. It began in part because Rudy Giuliani and others were pursuing an allegation that Hunter and President Biden had allegedly received a bribe from Ukraine's energy company, Burisma. The only problem with this allegation is that there seems to be no evidence of it. And even the recordings Republicans touted as evidence, well, those apparently don't exist either. We don't know if this is the end of the federal investigation into Hunter Biden, but we do know that the charges Republicans wish to prove against him are nowhere to be found in today's court filings. So, faced with the reality that this could have been a nothing burger case from the beginning, Republicans are flipping the script, and they are finally letting us know what this has all been about. This is an investigation of Joe Biden. This is still an investigation of Joe Biden. The president's son, obviously, is a, is a person of interest in the investigation. But regardless, we're going to continue to focus on Joe Biden. We're going to continue to follow the money. Uh, hopefully, we'll be having more people in for depositions, and uh, we'll have a committee hearing very soon. Joining us now, Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, member of the House Judiciary Committee. Congressman, great to see you. Thank you for being here. Let me start by getting your reaction to Congressman Comer's remarks today, saying that while Hunter Biden is a person of interest in the House GOP investigation, this has always been about getting to President Biden. There's no subtext there. It's, it's all just text. Uh, that's right. They don't know how to define President Biden. One day they call him Sleepy Joe. One day they call him Corrupt Joe. I don't think he can be sleepy and corrupt. They know they just don't like him because he's not Donald Trump. And so I'm not going to listen to Comer or McCarthy whine about this case, especially when McCarthy is 400 days into violating his own congressional subpoena. What your viewers should know is that Hunter Biden has accepted responsibility. He paid the taxes. This was a Trump lawyer who, a Trump appointee, where half the investigation was done during the Trump administration. None of the MAGA claims have come true about what they wanted this to be. And by the way, not a single Democrat, when the president's son was charged with a crime today, went out and threatened violence, as Republicans do. And to put this in further context, you know, should someone go to jail or should they not go to jail for this? Roger Stone owes $2 million in back taxes, and the Department of Justice simply filed a civil claim against him. So, again, this, this is really to just be a demolition crew for Donald Trump without any regard to the, you know, to reality. In, in the last block, we talked about this as sort of like a, a black box, right, where they were like, don't look over here, look over there, focus on what is happening over there. And in some cases, to create this false sense of symmetry between what they were looking at with Donald Trump and what they wanted to look at with the Biden administration. Of course, that symmetry does not exist. My question is, how much longer can they continue to do that before the American people say there, there is no there there? Yeah, that's right. And this is all about being, you know, the insurrection LLC law firm in Congress for Donald Trump. Tomorrow we'll see this when they bring John Durham before the Judiciary Committee to do the same thing. But Alicia, what we've seen is there's two prosecutors now that Donald Trump appointed who ran their investigations during the Trump administration. And all of these wild claims that the Republicans have made about Hunter Biden or Russia have just amounted to Nothing. And, and so uh, what we have to do is to go, you know, on offense uh, and show that they're always projecting. 
They are the ones who failed to honor their own subpoenas as witnesses to the greatest crime ever in the United States, January 6th. They are the ones that seek to defund the FBI and pretend to all of us that they back the blue. So we just, you know, can't just sit back and take this. I think we have to counterpunch pretty hard here. Otherwise, they'll own the narrative. I do want to ask you, Congressman, CNN is reporting today that the prosecutor who handled Hunter Biden's investigation, as you know, a Trump appointee named David Weiss, said the investigation is still ongoing. What do you think he means by that? What's next? Well, again, I think the president would say, uh, just as he said, you know, with respect to the Donald Trump investigation or anyone around January 6th, is that, you know, the facts, uh, you know, should be chased, uh, run down, and the rule of law should be applied across the board equally to everyone. So uh, if Hunter Biden, you know, committed crimes, he should be held accountable. If he didn't commit crimes, he shouldn't be treated any worse just because the Republicans, you know, want to punish the president's son. Andrew Weissman uh, made the case today that the same Republicans that want to defund the IRS and are against enforcing gun laws in this country are now complaining about a tax charge and a gun deal made by a Trump appointee. Your reaction to that? Yeah, it's very rich that uh, they are touting and and celebrating that, you know, Hunter Biden uh, has pled guilty to or will plead guilty to a gun charge and won't be able to ever own a gun again in his life. You know, I'll, I'll be interested if the NRA takes us up, you know, at their next convention uh, as, you know, give Hunter his gun back. I, I can't imagine they will, because, again, none of none of this is about a principle that they stand on, whether it's Second Amendment, whether it's Russia, whether it's the police. It's just reflexively we have to own the libs. We're for the Second Amendment until it affects Hunter Biden. We support Russia. We support fighting Russia until Joe Biden defends the Ukrainians. We're for the police until they stop the coup that Donald Trump tries to run. It's just an own the libs agenda with no core set of principles. Let me shift just for a moment and ask you about Trump telling Fox News last night he personally handed the boxes containing the classified documents and that his delay in returning such documents is because he was concerned about his personal belongings, including his golf clothing. Yeah, Alicia, uh, there's no uh, Fox News privilege uh, in the criminal code. And so uh, I I think he's in real trouble. We saw a confession last night. And again, my Republican colleagues in Congress try and offer all of these defenses to Donald Trump to save him. And he doesn't want their defenses because his defense is, if I did it, it's legal. And here, this is what I did. Therefore, it's legal. He thinks they're king. They want to save him. He's not asking to be saved because he thinks he should be treated uh, and and held, uh, you know, to a uh, a much higher regard than anybody else in our country. Congressman Eric Swalwell, as always, thank you so much for making the time to be with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Alicia. Still ahead here tonight, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. All of a sudden, very quiet on two of his major moves to the far right. That is next. And one year after the Supreme Court got rid of the constitutional right to abortion, the victims of that ruling, well, they are speaking out and fighting back. Stay with us.
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Ron DeSantis is going to be landing in this city later this month yeah. to hold a fundraiser for his presidential campaign. Yeah. Should he be worried that law enforcement officials no. in this state are going to arrest him when he walks off Come the plane? I, now we're getting into hyperbole. I, it, the bottom line is well, just we're for accountability. I mean, I don't think it's hyperbole. You're the one raising the issue of criminality, potentially. We potentially. Yeah. Yesterday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis touched down in Sacramento, California, for a presidential campaign fundraiser. This was the first time DeSantis set foot in the state since California Governor Gavin Newsom threatened him with kidnapping charges. And State Attorney General Rob Bonta launched an investigation into Florida for flying 36 migrants from Texas to Sacramento earlier this month. The migrants, many of whom are asylum seekers, were reportedly promised jobs, shelter and support. Instead, Sacramento aid group said migrants were left stranded outside of the city's Catholic diocese. It took days for DeSantis and his administration to admit that Florida was responsible for those flights. That twisted political chess game DeSantis quietly played the lives of 36 humans sparked a very public spat with California Governor Gavin Newsom. Newsom called DeSantis a, quote, small, pathetic man. And DeSantis responded in turn. He has a real serious fixation on the state of Florida. I mean, I think it's just bizarre that he does that. But what I would tell, what I would tell him is, you know what? Stop pussyfooting around. Are, are, are you going to, are you going to throw your hat in the ring and challenge, uh, Joe? Given all that earlier noise, all that bravado, you might have thought DeSantis would have had plenty to say about his California rival at a private Sacramento fundraiser yesterday, one where people paid $3,300 to attend. But DeSantis reportedly said next to nothing, barely anything, about his new favorite political foil, Governor Newsom. Nothing about deceptively transporting dozens of migrants across state lines. DeSantis avoided reporters altogether. The best shot of him, the one you were looking at, is of him and his motorcade leaving the event. Despite all the bluster and chest pounding the Florida governor had done about his immigration policies and the alleged danger of leftist governments like Newsom's, he was pretty quiet about it yesterday. In the meantime, the 36 migrants he left stranded in Sacramento, well, they are speaking out. Some of them tell local NBC affiliate KCRA that they were made to sign documents they did not understand. They now believe they were deceived and brought to Sacramento under false promises. Some of the migrants had immigration court dates scheduled in New York and in Florida. Missing those scheduled hearings could derail their immigration proceedings. Others were separated from family members. As of Friday, just 
five of the 36 migrants have been reunited with their loved ones. That is the human cost of just one prong of DeSantis's new immigration policy, one of the strictest state-level immigration crackdowns in this country. Signed in May during a big, splashy ceremony, DeSantis's new bill includes more money to fly migrants to liberal cities, requires hospitals to ask patients about their immigration status, expands the use of E-Verify to check workers' immigration status, and enacts other draconian measures. That law is set to take effect on July 1st. And already, businesses, workers, and Latino conservatives are speaking out against it, terrified about what this law will mean for the state's immigrants, the businesses, and for its economy. The Florida Policy Institute estimates undocumented workers make up almost 10% of the workforce in Florida's most labor-intensive industries, like construction and agriculture. We're losing such a large swath of the workforce would be devastating. In fact, Florida Republicans were seen earlier this month begging Latinos not to leave the state, despite this new law. This bill is 100% supposed to scare you. I'm a farmer, and the farmers are mad as hell. We are losing employees. They're already starting to move to Georgia and other states. And now... The Republican governor turned presidential candidate who has loudly placed himself at the center of national culture wars is uncharacteristically quiet. Just like he was earlier this spring when he signed one of the most draconian abortion bans in the country. In April, he signed a six-week ban. Six weeks that would block millions of Floridians from abortion care. He did that quietly behind closed doors. Making Florida the 16th state since Roe was overturned last year to either totally ban abortion or block it after six weeks which, of course, is before most people know they are pregnant. That Florida law is currently tied up in state court, but the state is part of a growing trend of red states banning abortion in the past year, despite the potential political consequences and the very, very real human cost. More on that next. Last year, Elizabeth Weller was 19 weeks pregnant with her first child when she says she felt something, quote, shift in her uterus and her water broke. Weller said she screamed because, quote, that's when I knew something wrong was happening. This transpired more than a month before the Supreme Court would strike down the federal right to an abortion. But for pregnant Texans like Weller, nearly all abortions were already illegal. That's because of a 2021 state law forbidding the termination of a pregnancy when fetal cardiac activity is detected. Texas's abortion law has one exception for a, quote, medical emergency. But that phrase is so vague that hospitals are often reluctant to offer the procedure until an emergency becomes indisputably dire. That left Weller with impossible options. I could either stay in the hospital to wait for my baby to die at which point I could get the abortion I needed to protect my health, or I could go home and wait for either my daughter's death or for an infection to develop that might cause my own demise. We asked about going to another state, but my doctor, concerned for me, said that traveling was too dangerous. The darkest week of my life began as I left the hospital, and amniotic fluid actively leaked, out of my, leaked down my legs. That was Weller this afternoon, telling her story at a White House roundtable with First Lady Jill Biden, marking nearly one year since the fall of Roe. New polling from USA Today and Suffolk University finds that states' efforts to restrict abortion access has only made people more supportive of abortion rights. 
And that support echoes a point made by Vice President Kamala Harris earlier this evening during an abortion roundtable with our colleague, Joy Reid. This is an issue that all Americans should care about, um, independent of the choices they would personally make for themselves, right? This is fundamentally about freedom, the right to make decisions about your own life and your own body. And this is a foundational principle for our country. We were founded on the notion that government should, at some point, stay out of people's business. Joining us now, Nancy North, a president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, a year since the fall of Roe this Saturday. Take a big step back for me and tell me where you think we are today in the fight for reproductive rights. Well, let me just start with today, Please. which is the first lady sitting around the table with four women who've had pregnancy crises, had to have abortions, but were denied because Florida and Texas and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And we didn't see this before the reversal of Roe versus Wade, that you would have at the highest level this kind of conversation, the kind of personal conversations that families have been having around the kitchen table for a long time to see it at the White House. So one way to answer where we are today is that the nation's now talking. Another thing to say is it's tragic because these four women represent thousands who are going through a crisis right now because they can't make their own health care decisions. For years, reproductive rights advocates have said abortion is health care. And in some ways, the fall of Roe and what has followed after all of these stories being shared, it has made that point tenfold. That's absolutely true. The fact that you can have a pregnancy complication and not be able to get access to what is the standard of care, which is terminating the pregnancy. And we are seeing it. We have filed the Center for Reproductive Rights, a lawsuit against the state of Texas on behalf of both Elizabeth and 12 other women. And they just they represent the tip of the iceberg about what's happening right now. Talk to me about that lawsuit, because it's one we have been following. Where does it stand? Where do you expect it to go? Well, we just added more plaintiffs. That's people who are suing, because when we filed the lawsuit in March after that, Dozens of women were calling and saying, I'm in these circumstances, too. So we've now asked for a preliminary injunction. We're going to ask the court to make a ruling saying that women in these circumstances, pregnant people in these circumstances, need to be able to get access to abortion care. The hospitals, the doctors, they need clarity. They don't know what to do because they're facing 99 years in prison. A lot of people, when we talk about this, we look for wins and defensive wins end up getting marked as wins because things could have gone in a different direction. It is striking to me that you are using the courts as a means of attempting as best you can in this environment to expand reproductive rights. A lot of people will say it's all about the next election. Look at the next election. Tell me about the role you think the courts are poised to play should cases like this continue to be brought. Well, one thing people have to remember is you've got two sets of rights protections at the federal level with the United States Constitution and at the state level with state constitutions. So big win this year in South Carolina, the highest court in South Carolina saying the state constitution protects the right to abortion. You know, voters in Michigan putting the right to abortion in their state constitution. And in these cases like the one that we brought in Texas, we're looking to state law to say, let's be sure that people can get the care that they need in these emergency obstetric situations. We're still, of course, waiting for the ruling on 
for Pristone. I visited an abortion clinic in Brooklyn where they are stockpiling misoprostol in case they are not able to use the two-step gold standard protocol. How is your organization preparing for the possibility of that ruling? Well, for one thing, we filed a lawsuit as well trying to get the court to say, no, the FDA decision was right, and let's keep it where it is. We're also working to make sure, I, you know, the Texas case, which is now in front of the Court of Appeals, probably heading to the Supreme Court. And it's so important that a whole range of voices be heard by the courts, including major pharmaceutical companies. I mean, this doesn't just threaten the approval of the abortion medications. It also affects the approval process for all medications. That's what happens when we try to upset the rule of law the way that has been totally unleashed after Roe versus Wade was reversed. One of the things I am most struck by when we have these conversations are these graphics we pull up of the places where abortion is now so limited that people have to travel out of state. The passage of North Carolina's 12-week ban, it means in a few short weeks, another state in the South will further restrict abortion access. You have South Carolina lawmakers passing a six-week abortion ban. I mean, That has an impact for the women who live in those states, but it also has an impact for all of the states where those women will be traveling to in order to access care. That's absolutely true. And providers have done a wonderful job in states where abortion care is legal to make sure that they can absorb the uh, the patients that are coming in. And you had clinics that have moved to other states. But nevertheless, think about the burden on the people having to travel across multiple state lines. And everyone needs to remember, like the women who met with the first lady today, you might be in a pregnancy crisis and you can't travel. So it is now dangerous to be pregnant in any of the states that ban abortion, because if you have a crisis in your pregnancy, you don't know whether you will be able to get the standard of care, which could mean having to terminate the pregnancy and being told to go home and wait until you have sepsis, which has happened over and over again. So everyone in those states who's pregnant is vulnerable. I have about a minute left, but I do want to ask you, given that we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the fall of Roe. It was such a motivating issue in these past midterms. I mean, it truly came to define these midterms. A year out, do you think that that intensity has increased? Do you worry at all about it diminishing? Oh, I think it has been sustained and it will be sustained. We obviously saw it in the midterms, but, you know, people are experiencing it every day, right? For themselves, for the people they love for their friends. So this isn't something that is going to go away. And, you know, they kept saying the pundits before the midterms, oh, everyone's moved on. Absolutely not. People care deeply about this issue. The public is with us, and we're going to continue to see that. Even people who do not consider themselves pro-choice often said, this is government overreach, and I don't like it. It's what you saw in a lot of states. Nancy Northup, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, Thank you so much for spending time with us. One final story ahead here tonight. One of the lawyers who pushed the fake elector scheme for Donald Trump in 2020 was on the stand today and could lose his law license. That's next. Well, former President Donald Trump's actions after losing the 2020 election are still the subject of federal and state investigations. One of the key players in the aftermath of that election is also facing legal fallout. Conservative attorney John Eastman today began defending himself against 11 disciplinary charges brought by the State Bar of California. The hearings are scheduled to take more than a week. And at the end, the court could recommend that Eastman's license to practice law in the state 
be suspended or revoked. Eastman was hired by Donald Trump to represent him in December of 2020 in connection with the 2020 presidential general election, including matters related to the Electoral College. In that capacity, Eastman drafted a memo in which he argued that then-Vice President Mike Pence had the power to overturn the election results while presiding over the counting of electoral votes on January 6, 2021. That theory, of course, underpinned much of the rage against Pence by the mob that stormed the Capitol that day. But this disciplinary hearing is not the only major consequence that Eastman may be facing. FBI agents seized Eastman's cell phone last summer, reportedly at the behest of the Justice Department's inspector general. Also last summer, federal judge agreed that his emails should be released to congressional investigators because he found it, quote, more likely than not, that President Trump and Dr. Eastman dishonestly conspired to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. And last winter, the January 6th investigation in the House referred Eastman to the Justice Department for prosecution. Presumably, that referral, along with whatever the FBI found on Eastman's cell phone, have been passed on to special counsel Jack Smith, who's yet to announce any results of his criminal investigation into January 6th. And we are also awaiting charging decisions by Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Eastman testified before her special purpose grand jury last summer. Maybe this is a good time to remind you that shortly after January 6th, Eastman wrote an email to fellow Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani, in which he said, and I quote, I've decided I should be on the pardon list if that is still in the works. That does it for us tonight. I'll see you again tomorrow. Top 302 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from zero to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach zero Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.